0: Welcome to We Are You Are, the podcast for robot developers, engineers, and anybody who is interested in robotics, hosted by the Unlimited Robotics team. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us for another episode of We Are You Are, the podcast for robot developers, makers, and anybody who's interested in robotics. Today, we have a special guest, not not just because she's a super interesting person, but she's one of the few females that we're hosting or guests in our podcast. So we are super excited by inviting her and her participation, Dr. Rehut Bursky. Thank you so much for participating today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really good. a great pleasure to be
0: here. Uh, thank you so much. And for those of you who do not necessarily know who Dr. Mursky <laughs> is, so Dr. Mursky is a postdoctoral fellow at the Computer Science Department in the University of Texas in Austin. She received her PhD on plan recognition, in real world environment from the Department of Software and Information Systems Engineering in Bengal University in Israel. She's interested in the similarities and differences between AI and natural intelligence and how these can be used to extend AI. In her research, she seeks algorithm behaviors and frameworks that can improve existing AI with human-inspired design. Beyond her research, Reuth is an active member in the AI research community. And this year she was selected as one of the 2020 Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Rising Stars. She is a star. In addition, her work has led to several awards, including two awards from the Israeli Ministry of Science and the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Postdoctoral Award for Women in Mathematical and Computing Science. Reut, thank you so much again for being our guest. So let's start with the first question for today. The relationships between human and machines. Why do we need making computers understanding humans?
1: Uh, That's a great question. And um, I think that first and foremost, uh, it will just make our tools become better. Uh, It's like asking why do we need our uh, calendar to understand the meetings that we're in? And uh, if we know that we are entering a location, then it should be in the location slot in our uh, calendar invite. Uh, And you can see that uh, using Zoom meetings that, uh, I assume Google don't really want you to have uh, Zoom as your main category of location for your meetings, and they would rather have Google Meet. So even for this invitation, uh, the location was a Google Meet and you had to uh, manually insert a Zoom uh, address. So um, I think that first and foremost is, the fact that really we need to have, uh, if our systems understands our intentions, uh, understanding of the world, our beliefs, uh, beliefs, desires, intentions, this is the BDI model that uh, people always talk about, um, then they will become uh, much more valuable tools for us and, and in a more advanced stage, a better collaborator.
0: So thank you for the answer but do you really think people will eventually think of robots as social companions or humans will always keep those uh, robots as static objects? That's
1: um, There's a, a, a complex answer here because uh, on one hand, people already... Uh, perceive objects as animated. And uh, when your laptop doesn't work, sometimes you get mad at it. And you say, you stupid laptop, why don't you work? Uh, So (laughs) we are, uh, people give names to their cars, to their TVs. Uh, We create, uh, we are social beings and we create these uh, social connections even with uh, inanimate objects. Um, So robots only uh, become closer to be uh, active and dynamic objects. So uh, I think it's immediate that we will have this type of behavior towards them. Um, Personally, when I just started working with uh, personal assistants like Alexa or Siri, um, in the beginning, I had the urge to tell them thank you after uh, executing some command because uh, it's just the social behavior that we're so accustomed to. So on one aspect, yes, I do think that people will perceive robots as social entities that they will need to interact with. On the other hand, I think that there will be a huge gap and it will take us a long time if ever we will be able to bridge that gap uh, between uh, actual human interaction uh, as we speak now I see your face move. You not a bit, and now you will become self-aware of that and that will be challenging. But um, we usually do that when we discuss uh, uh, topics with one another, this is our way to communicate. And um, all of these nuances in our uh, social interactions is something that um, we will need to make our robots understand at some point if we want them to be in our daily lives.
0: So let me ask you a follow-up question. During the interaction, most cases, humans use emotional intelligence to understand the expressions and the behavior of the counterparty. When I think about a scientist developing a code for a robot, the scientist should create some kind of a decision tree based on rationality. I mean, on rational cases, if event A leads to either types of scenarios, each has their own chance to occur, which is a very mathematical, very rational uh, behavior while we all know that humans do not necessarily act in a rational way. So how would you think the gap will be bridged? Um,
1: Yeah, so uh... I, I agree. I understand uh, the concept of when you want to design uh, some algorithm, you want it to be rational, and you need to describe things in a very concrete mathematical um, way. So the computer will be able to understand that. Uh, But there are a lot of works now on adding inputs and sensing abilities to robots that will be able to understand people better. Uh, I talked recently with uh, a researcher who works on uh, a feeding robot for people with disabilities that can't eat by themselves. And uh, this robot needs to be very gentle and understand the position of the head and where the person is looking when they want to eat something. Um, And there is such a nuanced difference between picking up a pea or a soup or a piece of meat Um, So uh, all of these challenges are things that are configurable if we are able to configure them into the systems properly. And this is a challenge, of course. Uh, I think that uh, recent advancement in robotics, in uh, machine learning, enable us to use this. uh, Basically it's a type of big data that we need to uh, learn how to uh, manipulate and understand. Um, Another thing, when you talk about Um, emotional intelligence. Uh, People usually think about a robot being sad or happy or understand that we are sad or happy. So a robot will not be truly sad or happy, at least for now. Um, But we do have algorithms that can understand sentiment. And sentimental analysis is a strong uh, research area. And there are a lot of works that Uh, Even today, if you uh, search uh, Facebook or uh, Google, they can, they are uh, using context and uh, the things that you write to understand your mood a bit. And they know when you will be more engaged in something or not. So AI can start to understand, to grasp that we have different States of emotion that will affect our decision making and they will adapt accordingly. Um, it will, there is a lot to, to work in this area, of course, uh, especially when we talk about robots and not uh, virtual assistants, because uh, robots will need to interact with us. And once we are using physical interactions, people use much more uh, signals and cues. This is such a rich uh type of uh, communication, we have so many different channels. So uh, that will be very interesting. And I think that a lot of interesting and very fascinating research is going on right now in these areas.
0: So thank you again for the detailed answer. You mentioned uh, big data. You mentioned tons of data to parse from, to plan out of, to diagnose knowledge bases. So what do you think the future and the present uh, ways to solve the type of challenging that parsing, planning, and knowledge based-based diagnosis um I mean apply here if 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 at all, if we can solve them at all.
1: Uh, yeah, that's uh something that is close to my heart because uh Planning and parsing uh, uh, and uh, diagnosis are considered symbolic approaches and are considered more classic AI when now we have big data so and deep learning. Why do we need all of these uh, symbolic approaches? And uh, I think that the main answer is the fact that we can't solve everything using big data as is. Um, and even if we can't solve some problem with big data, it will be costly. And people are not always aware of the costs. Uh, training the BERT model for natural language um, can take uh, as much as a flight from New York to San Francisco in terms of the energy it consumes. So uh, if we can just add a bit of intelligence or what we call common knowledge, common sense, um, to our algorithm so it will be able to use this vast search space and uh, efficiently search it, we will get much better results and this is exactly what these uh, symbolic approaches give us and a lot of people talk today about neurosymbolic, which combines both uh, neural networks and uh, symbolic ai together so for example my research uh involves a lot of theory of mind and the fact that we as people have models and constructs to uh, model other agents around us humans or non-humans um, so if we are able to explicitly create this structure and model it, it will be much faster to understand an interaction than just uh, floating in the whole latent space of possible interactions between people.
0: Wow, interesting. Do you think it will only involve software or a combination of new hardware, sensors, maybe underskin sensors, that combines with software.
1: Yeah, I, I think that uh, hardware will evolve and is evolving now uh, rapidly, and we see fascinating uh, new research. For example, the one that I mentioned about the feeding robot, um, and uh, a lot of work with uh, tactile and fa- haptic feedback between a person and a robot. Uh, and these are things that are crucial. Uh, to the development of AI as well, because uh, what our AIs will be able to do depends on the in- inputs that they get. Um, so the more we can feed into our brains, our artificial brains, the more it will be able to process. Um, so um, a-, a lot of times people talk about uh, uh, physical intelligence and uh, the intelligence that uh, emerges, uh, emerges when you have an interaction with something. Um, and um, it's. I think it might be a bit of a philosophical question. Some people talk about the brain in a jar and how intelligent can be just a brain in a jar. But I do think that when we want to create AI and robots that we, we'll be able to collaborate with people, they need to have some embodiment. They need to be present in the real world just as we are intelligent uh, to some extent because of the fact that we are present in the real world.
0: Oh, interesting. Let's talk about care systems. So, one of the main reasons that I was so fascinated by your research was the read that I did of the Seeing I Robot Grand Challenge, Rethinking About Automated Care, that you wrote. I would be very happy, first of all, definitely dear audience will place a link to this article because it is extremely interesting article, but for those who have yet to read about it, I'll be happy if you can share what led to write this paper.
1: Yeah, uh, so as I said, I've been working on theory of mind and understanding uh, other uh, people and agents around us and I arrived to Peter Stone's lab for my postdoc. Um, and Peter is a, a great researcher and he does a lot of research with robots. Um, and he had, uh, he's one of the um, founding fathers of the RoboCup competition, which is uh, the competition for uh, soccer playing robots. Um, uh, although the name sounds like something completely different, it's just a very friendly soccer game Uh, between robot teams. They have simulations and real world. uh, They start from very small robots to human sized robots that need to play. And they have the goal to the grand challenge to design a robot that can play soccer in a human team. Um, So we are still not there, but we're getting there. And each year there are improvements uh, thanks to this competition. And I was thinking of uh, a very specific challenge that will require theory of mind and will require understanding the needs and desires of uh, a teammate that uh, you will, that the robot will need to be the proxy for. Um, and guide dogs and service dogs are maybe the most wonderful example that we have for uh, other entity that takes on the goals of, of humans and try to assist them. So uh, that's how I basically reached
0: this uh, grand challenge. Uh, and I must admit the first time I read it, it was really mind blowing. And so I'll be happy to further understand what in your mind is, will be the optimal service robot in terms of caring and, and maybe some empathy Um to, to the counterparty or to the human that it's supposed to serve, um, is there any type of social disobedience that we should be concerned of when interacting with robots and maybe not complying with the standard caring uh, uh, um, ethics or, or, or standards that we, work, we are accustomed to? So I'll be happy to hear your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, um, so uh, in this paper I talk a bit about uh, when should a robot be compliant and when should it actually disobey. And I think that as part as uh, social entities, we do care a lot about the fact that the other uh, person or agent in front of us uh, has their own agenda. Um, And actually people prefer to play uh, uh, board games with robots that can't really uh, solve the problem in all times and cannot be optimal, which are basically more human-like. And in a sense, I think that if we have robots that are to some extent stubborn, they will be more social. Of course, the stubbornness, uh, especially in a service robots that has some goal, it needs to be in very specific and careful situations. And one of the greatest example, again, from service dogs, And uh, the eye dogs, when they need to uh, walk up blind person uh, to cross a road, they know uh, when to stop and say, okay, now I'm not going to cross the road because a car is coming. Uh, If the blind person can't see or hear uh, the car, the dog should disobey and say, "Um, you want me to cross the road, I won't do that right now. Um, The benefit that we will have in implementing something like that in a robot is that the robot will will be able to explain that and say, there's a car coming, so I'm not going to move. So this disobedience will be very transparent to its user. And I think that this is something that is very important. We are always so uh, afraid of having robots uh, um, that will take over the world or uh, AI that will conquer uh, an extinct uh, humanity and it's I, I think it this is why even if it's so far-fetched I do think that uh, we need to consider this type of interactions and there's past research on trust in that uh, in that aspect that we want to build robots and machines that people will find friendly and will find um, companions that they can
0: rely on. So that brings me to another follow-up question regarding visual appearance. You 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 mentioned the interaction between the service robot and the person who it should serve. However, in the case of the dog that you mentioned, when a blind person walk with a dog, with a companion in the street, they are not in a static, I mean, in a, in, a, in a shell environment. They walk in the street and there are people over there and there is public. There are cats, dogs, infants, uh, old people, and, and a lot of people who are not necessarily are used to the situation. Do you think that this specific case of service robot as a dog should actually look like a dog Let's call it spot from Boston Dynamics, or it should looks like it should look like a a, a tool, a, an instrument, a, a something that may be visually nice, but not necessarily like a dog.
1: Yeah. So um, there two. Parts to my answer. One is the technical requirements of what do we need from a service robot that will be able to navigate in, in the wild, in in streets, uh, and uh, to walk on carpets and stairs and uh, bricks. And the answer is that when you, it boils down to the fact that you do need at least a robot on four legs, a quadruped, or. Um, with uh, um, a, a, type of, a, a type of wheels that will enable it to walk on these types, to navigate in, in these terrains. Uh, so eventually, when we talked about uh, physical intelligence, it boils down to the fact that we do need something that will look at least similar to a dog in that aspect. And the second part is, again, the social component of, of this interaction. Um, And we've done research in Peter's lab. Uh, It started before my time and I continued it, um, that if you mount a robot with LED strips to blink like a car, I'm going to turn right, Um, people don't really understand whether the blinking means uh, I'm going to turn right or you should turn right. Um, So it's something that you need to be trained on. And like you said, when you walk in the street, some people have never encountered uh, this type of robot before, so they won't know what the norms are. So uh, you need to find a way that is more intuitive. And this is a research that I was part of. Uh, We mounted a similar robot with uh, a virtual head. And that head turned its gaze uh, and looked to the way it was walking. And this is a signal that people intuitively able to understand as I'm gonna turn this way. Uh, we even tried to do the same research uh, between humans and humans, uh, and uh, I was walking in a corridor and sometimes I looked to the way I was going and sometimes I looked to the other way. and that was a much stronger signal than my body rotation or the trajectory. So, uh, when I looked one way and walked to the other, people collided um, with me. And that was really uh, a, a fun and interesting uh, research. Um, and I think that this is something precisely that we will need to have uh, augmented in such a seeing eye robot, uh, especially since uh, visually impaired people might not use the same cues that people are so accustomed to. So the robot can be a surrogate to that behavior.
0: Wow. Wow. Great answer. Um, Dr. Mirsky, last question for today because you invested too much time in us and we appreciate it. Um, it was a pleasure. I, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm a teenage girl, not me. I mean, let's call it a teenage girl living in new york city in Bangalore, in amsterdam or in tel aviv israel and i want to become a scientist and i want to do in i want to make impact in the world based on your experience what would you recommend to such teenager to do in order to become an impactful person as yourself
1: oh wow actually when i honestly when i was a teenager I didn't think of going into robotics. and uh, I didn't think about programming at all. I uh, only got to this when during my army service. Um, So uh, that's an opportunity that you you don't know when you will encounter this in your life. Uh, But once I realized that I find this interesting, I was hooked. And I started uh, teaching myself. And then I went to the university uh, to learn computer science, and I think that People who are interested in that uh, should definitely um, try to see what they're passionate about, why they're passionate about it, and then it will be easy to find the um, right track to learn. I do think um, that a lot of times, especially women, but not just, uh, are intimidated by the fact that, especially robots, for example, it's a lot of... uh, Uh, gears and tubes and uh, electricity and things that are not very attractive as is uh, mostly because we weren't trained on that from very early age. Um, And I think that uh, once uh, I do hope that people will understand that especially with robots and the fact that robots interact with people and are uh, should be at some point ubiquitous and in our environment in all times. This is an opportunity to do research that involves both the cool stuff about uh, robots and technical aspects and coding, um, but also to have an impact on social interactions and in real life. One of the most fascinating research um, works that I am involved now is about rehabilitation robots and making robots teach people to uh, perform some motor skill better. Wow. So this is really cool stuff, and it works with uh, uh, physicians and physiotherapists. Um, and if not for the technology, which is a tool, I wouldn't be able to do that. So, um, I, I in general, I think that everyone should learn coding, uh, <laughs> but I'm biased. So,
0: Doctor Ruth Mirsky, thank you so much for participating in our podcast. It was a pleasure hosting you. I'm sure that all our listeners will be thrilled to hear what you have to say in your insights. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Thank you so much.